You're listening to Expanding Horizons, the podcast of the Unitarian Church of South Australia, a home of progressive spirituality and free religious thought and action since 1854. The views expressed in these podcasts are those of the speaker and are not intended to represent the position of the church itself or of the worldwide Unitarian Universalist movement. For more information, visit unitariansa.org.au. My name is Ron Binnenbaum. So I'm not the minister of this church, that's Chris Hanna. I welcome you on behalf of the generations of Unitarians from South Australia and from all over the world who have worshipped this fellowship for over 150 years. We acknowledge that this is the traditional land of the Ghana people and that we respect their spiritual relationship with their country. For this church is likewise a spiritual community, one that supports you in seeking and following your own spiritual path any path that encourages you to see more clearly, to love more abundantly, and to work toward a better world. Please do join us after today's service for coffee, tea, and conversation. It's time for our first hymn, Shalom Chavirim. We all stand up. Margaret, that's time for the story for the story for all ages. Since we don't have any littlies for sitting on the floor, I'll just read it from up here. This is Yafa and Fatima. Shalom Salam. In a beautiful land called the land of milk and honey, there lived two neighbors. One was Yafa and the other was named Fatima. Yafa and Fatima each owned a beautiful date grove. During the week, they both worked very hard gathering their dates. On most days, Yafa and Fatima sold all their dates at the market and were able to buy plenty of tasty food to eat, which they often shared. Yafa loved Fatima's shawarma, and Fatima loved Yafa's schnitzel. Yafa prayed at the synagogue. Fatima prayed in the mosque. They both loved God and they both loved to follow God's ways. Yafa would read from her Sidur in the morning. Fatima would read from her Quran in the morning. Yafa fasted on Yom Kippur. Fatima fasted during Ramadan. Fatima celebrated Eid. Yafa celebrated Passover. 
When Yafa saw Fatima, she would wave and call, Shalom, peace. When Fatima saw Yafa, she would wave and call, Salam, peace. One year there was very little rain. Fatima and Yafa had very few dates to eat or sell at the market. Yafa lay awake at night. She was worried. Maybe Fatima is hungry, thought Yafa. Fatima lay awake at night. She was worried. Perhaps Yafa didn't have enough to eat today, thought Fatima. Fatima placed a basket of dates on her donkey. Then she took them to Yafa's house. She poured the dates into a basket on Yafa's porch. Meanwhile, Yafa collected a basket of dates, placed it on her donkey, and carried it to Fatima's house. She poured the dates into a basket on Fatima's porch. The two neighbors quietly made their way back home, feeling happy. In the morning, when Yafa walked out to her porch, to her great surprise, she saw her basket full of dates. Goodness, I have so many dates. I'll take more to Fatima tonight. Meanwhile, Fatima walked out onto her porch and was just as surprised. Goodness, I have more dates than I thought. I will take some more to Yafa tonight. That night, both Yafa and Fatima loaded their donkeys with dates and set off towards each other's homes. They met just where their fields came together. Fatima looked at Yafa. Yafa looked at Fatima. The two friends hugged each other and laughed. Shalom, said Yafa. Salam, said Fatima. Thank you for thinking of me, said Yafa. Thank you for thinking of me too, said Fatima. Together they returned to Yafa's house to share a meal of dates and tea. Now is the time for candles for share, of sharing. You're welcome to come forward, light a candle, and briefly share joy or concern. Joy shared can be magnified, and sorrows shared can be lessened. But if you wish, you may light a candle in silence. Today, I will talk about Israel in relation to the story of my family. I was born there, but grew up in Amsterdam, the Netherlands. Imagine this is 2053, 30 years into the future. I'm almost 90 years old. I'm in Tel Aviv, Israel, my city of birth, attending a public event which is opened with the statement we acknowledge that we are meeting on the traditional land of two peoples, Israeli Jews and Palestinian Arabs. The audience is used to the standard introduction of public gatherings. A similar statement is made at a public event in Ramallah, Palestine. It's a town on the so-called West Bank, which at that time is part of the country of Palestine. For that, I would have to grow very old, just as old as my grandfather, Actually, when he was 90, he was, still, uh, he was still okay with his mind. So the scenario that I just sketched was an, is an extremely unlikely scenario. Peace in the Middle East in 30 years from now. Very unlikely, but not entirely impossible and worth pursuing as an ideal, as the idea itself can be the basis for Israeli-Palestinian friendship. And actually, there are many people working towards this ideal, and every step that they move more closely to it is, is a step forward. So the idea itself can be the basis for Israeli-Palestinian friendship. The prelude by Yehudit Ravitz was from 1979, the year I finished high school in Amsterdam and went on a trip to Israel with my father Micha. His parents Esther and Achemia were still alive. So those are my other two grandparents. This is my, my maternal grandparent. More about him, a lot more about him later. 
So we stayed with my Israeli Saba and Safta, grandpa and grandma in Hebrew, as I had done several times before. So I lived in Amsterdam and every now and then we go on holidays there. It was a great holiday. And then in, uh, in, in, se- in 79, the year that Prelude came out on, on Yehudi Dravich's debut album, and when I finished high school, I went on a trip to Israel with my father Micha. And it, it was a beautiful holiday. We went hiking in several beautiful wild nature areas, including the Sinai Desert, which was occupied by Israel at the time. It was completely safe and peaceful. Actually, this is long before the Arab Spring. Now there is a Bedouin uprising against Egypt. At that time, it was completely peaceful there. And it was totally undeveloped and, and wild. Now actually there's some resorts there and they're developing some tourist destinations there. It's a fantastic area. So it was totally unspoiled. And we could just roll out the sleeping bag and sleep at night. It was nice, nice and warm at night. Rolled out our sleeping bags on the beach opposite, opposite the Saudi coast. And we went snorkeling in, the, in fantastic coral reefs. We also went inland to climb some mountains, including Mount Sinai, called Jebel Musa in Arabic, or Mount Moses the traditional location where Moses received the Ten Commandments. It is a sacred site of peaceful pilgrimage of several religions. There is a monastery nearby, at the summit has a mosque and a Greek Orthodox chapel. Many walkers follow the route through the ravine near the monastery, climbing the 3,750 steps of penitence. All enjoy the beautiful panorama of ragged desert mountains. So I liked it there and I decided to postpone university by a year and spent another year in Israel just like my mother Danielle had done 19 years earlier. Back in the early 60s on the beach in Tel Aviv, she was approached by Tzvika, a young man who had heard she was from the Netherlands. He asked for her address. His brother Micha was studying in the Netherlands and it would be nice if he could visit. So like that, actually, he basically set them up. He wasn't even aware of that. <laughs> that led to my being there. Tzvika figuring out, oh, there's this girl from the Netherlands and Micha is starting to study there and it's, not, it's good for her to know some people there. So he goes to her and asks for her address. And then it turns out they actually fell in love and they had me. So I was born in Tel Aviv, but they decided to move in with Daniela's parents, Ben and Thea. You've already seen Ben, he's here, in Amsterdam. Thus I grew up in the same house as my grandfather, or Opa, in Dutch, Ben Sayed. He was actually a well-known figure in Amsterdam city councillor for several decades, very active in the Dutch Labour Party. So he had this big house in, in Amsterdam, and uh, as a young boy I would often go downstairs to him. He had a strong Jewish identity. He grew up in Amsterdam's Jewish quarter. And this photo, is actually there's no photo from the time when he grew up there, in the late 19th century, <laughs> no photo from that time. This is actually a photo uh, during German occupation with a German sign there saying uh, in, in Dutch and German, Jewish quarter. This was under Nazi occupation. There happened to be a photo available from that time and the houses still looked the same as when my grandfather was there and he grew up. Actually, at that time he had luckily escaped. He had fled already at that time. This is where he grew up. So he lived there as a young boy at the turn of the century. This was about half a century later during the German occupation. Here are his grandfather and, and uh, parents. These are all uh, 19th century pictures. So his grandfather, my great-great-grandfather, going four generations back from me, you can see him there, Rebbe, Rebbe Avrom Sayed, and my great-grandmother and great-grandfather, Saantje Sayed Visser and, and Jacob Sayed. They were reasonably well-to-do, but Ben also witnessed severe poverty and exploitation of workers. 
1903, when I was 16 years old, there was a great railway strike for workers' rights. So this is in the old capitalist days where workers were still exploited and there was severe poverty. Very large families and my grandfather saw that and as a young boy there were these socialists who were sort of rebels and uh, weren't quite as mainstream as there as as would be later on. But he witnessed this great poverty with large families close to where he lived. So then in 1903 when I was 16 years old there was a great railway strike for workers' rights and this strike played a big role in his polit political awakening. He became a socialist and follower of the charismatic socialist leader Peter Jelles Toolstar. He befriended another Amsterdam boy, Willem Drees, also a socialist, who was one year older than him. Drees became a co-founder of the Dutch Labour Party and later Prime Minister of the Netherlands. He was much later, in, in the 1940s, he was Prime Minister of the Netherlands when Israel started to exist and he recognized Israel as Prime Minister. So Willem Drees was a contemporary of his and they were good friends. So they both were socialists and Ben became a prominent member of the party and later a city councillor. After Ben had done his final high school exam in 1904, there was a big socialist international congress in Amsterdam. All the leaders of the socialist movements were there. They sang the international. Ben was impressed with great speeches and debates by Trulstra, the Frenchman Jean Jaurès and the German August Bebel. So there was this big international event and he was still a teenager. And the leaders didn't always agree and debated each other on some matters, but there was a great deal of international solidarity. And in his book, there's actually an autobiography of sorts. He was a well-known figure in Amsterdam. And in his early 90s, a journalist came by and interviewed him on old-fashioned tapes. Everything that he said in that interview about his life is in his book. It's called A Levelang Ben Sayed, A Lifelong Ben Sayed. And uh, for example, these photos that you see, they're in this book, a historical document. So in his book he says that uh, as a young man it was hard for him to believe that the French and German socialists would soon be enemies in the First World War. And another bitter surprise to the Soviet communists takeover after the Russian Revolution oppressing the Russian Social Democrats. The Netherlands actually remained neutral in the First World War. Belgium was invaded, a neighboring country, and the Sayed family hosted refugees from Belgium. And little did he know that he would later become a refugee himself. Ben studied medicine and became a doctor. And as a socialist doctor, he treated poor disadvantaged patients and was strongly interested in what is known as social medicine, public health policy to address class injustice. At this time, there was severe anti-Semitism in parts of Europe. There were pogroms in late Tsarist Russia. That was still before the Russian Revolution. Some Russian Jewish refugees came to the Netherlands. One of them, Katrin Reismann, Katrin Orgaia in Hebrew, became his wife. They had three sons. Here is his first wife, and my grandfather was his three sons from his first marriage. And here, a poster of an event to, to silently protest against pogroms, and also at the same time a morning session in a, in a synagogue for victims from pogroms in Eastern Europe. His wife and her family had gotten out of Eastern Europe before the pogroms. So they had these three sons. Ben and Katrin were attracted to Zionist ideas. Katrin wrote a booklet in Yiddish called Nit in Golus or Nit in Der Heim, not in exile or not at home. Golus from Hebrew Galut, Heim from German, Heim. Nit in Golus or Nit in Der Heim, not in exile and not at home. And that actually that, that kind of feeling, not exactly in exile, but also not quite feeling in ho at home, is a Zionist feeling. Zionism and modern Hebrew, key facets of Jewish nationalism, 
are an outgrowth of the so-called Haskalah, a Jewish version of enlightenment roughly from the 1770s to 1870s. Early Zionists were Theodor Herzl, whom I quoted in the beginning, founder of Zionism, which was a movement for a Jewish homeland in Palestine, Eliezer ben Yehuda, a linguist, prime mover of the revival of Hebrew as a modern language, which is actually uh, a, a unique event in, in modern linguistics, where uh, at one point actually had a job in a Tel Aviv hotel, and the waiter at one point said that they, had, they came up with a new word for tip. They always used the English word tip to uh, tip. They got a tip in the restaurant. A waiter got a tip, and now the waiter said, now they, they, they figured out there's a word tesher, And they found that somewhere in some old source that there was something a little bit like a tip and they introduced it to modern Hebrew. So the, 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 mo the modernization of Hebrew was still going on. It's actually the language of the Old Testament. Herbert Samuel was an early Zionist. He actually died the year I was, I was born. He was a British politician, cabinet member in Britain and the first commissioner to Palestine. And he played a key role in the so-called Balfour Declaration, which basically was a, an official statement of British support for the Zionist cause. David Ben-Gurion, born almost the same year as my grandfather and, 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 uh, and, and Willem Drees, later pr Prime Minister of the Netherlands, all born around the same time, founder of Israel. And also roughly of the same generation, there was a great Hebrew humanist philosopher, Martin Buber, who advocated for a dialogue with Palestinian Arabs. It is a historical tragedy that his approach wasn't chosen by the early Zionists. And Ben, my grandfather, volunteered as a doctor. He was a very gentle and peaceful man. He enlisted in the Israeli army as a doctor, just as he, before he, he went to the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s as a volunteer doctor. And he had no idea what was going on in Arab villages at the time, which is actually part of the tragedy because he was there to help the Zionists. I think that he spent most of his time treating the wounded from the battlefield. So he was there at the, as a, at the birth of the state of Israel. The Zionists won the war of independence. The Middle East conflict, actually several other conflicts as well, have their roots in contradictory British promises in the First World War. In the Balfour Declaration in 1917, the British promised Palestine to the Zionists. In a correspondence between McMahon and Hussein, The British promised Palestine to the Arabs if they rebelled against the Ottoman Empire in the First World War. And also during the war they made an agreement, a secret, a secret uh, agreement with the French, dividing the Middle East into British and French zones of influence. And this whole management of, of the First World War and its aftermath actually led to several conflicts also later on, also in some Arab countries in, in the Middle East. So a promise to the Zionists prevailed and the Holocaust was actually a major reason why this promise prevailed. And my grandfather lost many relatives in the Holocaust, and he managed to, to flee the country with two of his sons. So here you see a memorial in Amsterdam, which was only fairly recently built. And on the left you see a bigger picture. It's a, it's a very big memorial with all the victims of the Holocaust. And here is a detail with several Sayats. They were all relatives of Ben that he lost, including Ben's mother, whom you saw a photo of, Saartje. She was murdered at age, at age 83. And one of his sons, whose photos you've also seen, as well as his four-year-old granddaughter, little girl, Karintje, born in 39. She was killed at age four. So many of Ben's relatives got killed in the Holocaust, while Ben and two of his sons had, had fled the Netherlands.
Seven Holocaust refugees fled across the North Sea from Netherlands to England in his little boat. Two more photos from the book. So you see Ben and two of his sons and four others who were in the boat and fled to England. And Ben actually later lost, lost those sons. And my mother was his only surviving child. One son trained to be a pilot with the RAF and had, a, and had an accident. And the other one he was a doctor, but he, he left also a wife and a child behind. And, and they were killed and he felt very guilty and killed himself. And Ben actually was, uh, it just was so traumatic for Ben that he never mentioned that in his book. So he also lost the two sons that managed to flee to England. My mother was his only surviving child. And she was born after he fled. My grandmother was pregnant. My mother was half Jew. So they were not a high priority for the Germans. My grandmother was arrested and spent time in a prison camp because she helped the resistance. But she was not Jewish. Also a doctor like my grandfather. My mother was his only surviving child. I'm her only son. And my mother is alive and, do and doing well. And actually she might well visit us again sometime reasonably soon. So here I am with him still living in the same house on another floor. I had just been born in Israel. I came to Amsterdam and he holds me there on his balcony in Amsterdam. After high school, I wanted to be a journalist and being involved in real world affairs. So I, I wanted to go to the School of Journalism, but there were too many applications and I lost the lottery. I almost randomly signed up for Arabic as well. So before I went to university, I, I was still young and I, I spent a year in Israel. And I wanted to be a journalist and I heard that my application to the School of Journalism had been rejected. I lost the lottery while I was in, uh, in Israel. I met some Dutch journalists and they actually said that Arabic was a better choice for a career as a journalist being a correspondent in the Middle East without having to serve in the Israeli army because that was my plan to stay a Dutch citizen. I didn't support Israeli policy but I loved it there and I wanted to live there and be part of the peace movement. And I had a great time in Kibbutz Dovrat. This is a Kibbutz in Galilee. It had been settled in a peaceful way in the 1920s. I found this old archival picture where some early Zionist settlers met some Arab villagers and purchased the land and they, 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 they peacefully occupied the land and, start, and started to cultivate it and founded the kibbutz. I happened to spend some time in that very kibbutz, near that very village. You can see the village, some white houses with some mosques. The Arabs there are uh, Muslims, Christians and Druze which is another religion, which many people don't know a whole lot about because it's esoteric. Part of Nazareth is on a nearby hill. And Nazareth is nowadays an Arab city, mainly mixed Muslim, Christian, Druze. Arab city with a nearby development called Upper Nazareth, which is in Israel proper, not on the West Bank. But there are also some Jewish neighborhood there. I think even now everybody's still getting along over there in Israel proper. So Nazareth is an Arab, Arab city, and when I was in Dovrat, the Palestinian singer Reem Bana, a girl a few years younger than me, lived in Nazareth. And she's actually quite a successful career. <laughs> she was about 16 when I lived there, and she, she's a very good singer, and I just discovered her as I was preparing for this address. I found out that at the time I was in, in, in Dovrat, she lived nearby. And her song provides a good contrast with the Israeli anthem, so I, hopefully it works and we can play it later. She sings a song a little bit later on. So when Israel came into existence, it was a haven for Jews fleeing persecution and it fulfilled Zionist dreams. But from a Palestinian perspective, it was a disaster. The so-called Nakba. Nakba being the Arab word for disaster. Which I only learned about actually when I studied Arabic. 
When I lived in Dovrat, I was told that Palestinians had fled of their own free will and were encouraged by Arab fighters to do so. And later, actually, I discovered this was not true. And the so-called new historians in Israel, they, they challenged this version of history. And Israel is, of course, a democracy in a free country where you can peacefully demonstrate and question official versions of events. So the so-called new historians have done a lot of work on what actually happened during the so-called Nakba. And there, there are Israeli historians who studied it extensively. So it's well documented now, this uh, tragedy of Palestinian refugees. Next, we play two contrasting songs. There's a right-wing government where Netanyahu, the longest-serving Israeli prime minister, who is strongly opposed actually by many peace activists, including many Israelis, he made a deal with an extreme right-wing party who supports settlers. And they're very right-wing, they're very anti-Arab and even homophobic. And Netanyahu decided to make a coalition with them to stay prime minister to avoid being persecuted for corruption because he's in trouble because his corruption probe and being prime minister he can engineer law so that he's not persecuted for it so that's the that's the main reason why i made this uh, coalition with these far-right guys and this new government aggressively pursues more settlements in the west bank so there's actually still which is much less known there's still a, a peace movement and israelis and palestinians working together they're much less in the news, and they strongly oppose these policies. Peace now, Shalom Achshav, is one of them. So there are two conflicting narratives. I'd like to play two songs. The Israeli National Anthem. So you don't hear about it enough in the news, but there's an Israeli peace movement. And the main organization is called Peace Now, or Shalom Achshav. 
It was formed in 1978 when peace talks between Israel and Egypt were close to collapse. It came to prominence during the 82 Israeli invasion of Lebanon, during which Christian militia massacred Palestinians in two refugee camps. I was in their, demonstra I was in their demonstration of 400,000 people in Tel Aviv. And my mother, in Strasbourg, France, saw me on TV holding up a sign, Sharon, go home. He was Minister of the Defense at the time. Peace Now is still active. There are organizations supporting them in Canada, Friends of Peace Now, and the US, Americans for Peace Now. There is an Australian Friends of Palestine Association, and I actually patronized them. I, got some things, I bought some things from them, but it's not exactly the same. So, I'm wondering actually, and this might be a follow-up, something to think about and maybe talk about during coffee hour or later on, there might be a possible follow-up and finding ways to support the Israeli peace movement. And there's a lot that can be done. Also, for example, there are people helping refugees in, 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 in the Gaza Strip. Um, also, um, possibility for different uh, musical events. For example, to promote peace. Also with Palestinian performers and Israeli peace activists. And I think there are not enough in the news. So you get, you get all the bad news about the conflict and not people who actually work together. Israelis and, Israelis and Arabs working together for the cause of peace. So something to think about that we possibly follow up on. It's not, not in the news enough. Yeah, I got a shirt showing disappearing Palestine. I didn't bring it, but uh, it's one of the things I bought. I bought there. So, closing words by the by Amos Oz. The conflict begins and ends in the hearts and minds of people, not in the hilltops. We hope you've enjoyed this Expanding Horizons podcast. These podcasts are the intellectual property of the presenter. They can be used only with the express permission and appropriate acknowledgement of the presenter. This permission can be obtained by emailing admin at unitariansa.org.au. Please feel free to leave a comment or visit us on Facebook or Twitter by searching SA Unitarians or by visiting our website at unitariansa.org.au